If you have your Bibles with you this morning, would you open them to Romans chapter 12? Romans chapter 12, of course, we want your Bibles with you. We ask you to bring them every week because we're always going to be preaching out of the Word of God. So we hope you have them. If you don't, for some strange, nearly inexplicable reason, you don't have your Bible, there should be one right in front of you. And uh, if you would open that up to Romans chapter 12, we would greatly, greatly appreciate that. I want to begin this morning by reading to you something that William Booth, the founder of Salvation Army, once said. Because it sums up everything that we've been covering in Romans chapter 12. Now, you ready? Here it is. I want you to listen to it, those of you who have been here, through the lens and the filter of what we've learned in Romans 12. He says this, I will tell you the secret. God has had all that there was of me. There have been men with greater brains than I, even with greater opportunities. But from the day I got the poor of London on my heart and caught a vision of what Jesus Christ could do with me and them, on that day I made up my mind that God should have all of William Booth there was. And if there is anything of power... In the Salvation Army, it is because God has had all the adoration of my heart, all the power of my will, and all the influence of my life. That's William Booth. And friends, that is Romans 12. You see, we've been learning, and if you've gotten nothing else out of this series, then I hope that you've learned with us that Paul has written to us in order to motivate us to step on the altar of sacrifice and live for God. Now, friends, it's so easy to say that. Anybody can say that. You don't even need to be a Christian to say that. Living it out is another matter entirely. How powerful an image it is to picture. Isn't it incredible to picture placing yourself on the altar of God, offering all that you are for God's exclusive purpose and total commitment to Him. Living sacrifice that lives to do God's will that He has enabled you to do by giving you the gifts of the Spirit and the power to live out those gifts. A believer who is committed fully to God, whose mind is being renewed and life transformed, who's living out the supernatural gifts of the Spirit of God and the power that He provides. Friends, listen, that believer will experience a sanctified, spiritual, fruitful, satisfying, God-glorifying, Jesus-exalting life. And the evidence, here it is, this is entirely what this sermon's about, the evidence of a fully committed believer's life is not making God a promise, but it's in living a transformed life. And no evidence, no evidence is more important and more powerful than living a life of love. We're going to see as we walk through the remainder of chapter 12 an ever-expanding ripple of sacrificial living of friends, listen, which gets harder 
The further out the ripple goes, here it is, you ready? Here's a core. The inner circle's made up of three characteristics of a fully committed believer. Here it goes. Here's the next one. The next circle expands to include how a fully committed believer loves his brothers and sisters in the church. Here's the next one out. The way the fully committed believer should love those outside the church and the world. And here's where they get hard. It's the fourth one. And how a fully committed believer loves those who are our enemies. This is the rest of chapter 12. And this morning, we're going to look at the core, and we'll continue this as we move through it, but we're going to see the three characteristics that must be present if we're going to be fully committed believers. Friends, let me give you some advice if you would take it. If you want to test yourself, I hope you do. If you want to test yourself and examine yourself to see how your life evidences these three characteristics, listen, you're going to need to ask others who will give you honest feedback. Certainly, there's a lot of value in taking long, prayerful looks at your lives to see if you're living out these three characteristics. But friends, come on, be honest with me. We all tend, all of us tend to not be the most accurate self-examiners. There are no exceptions to this. So you have to add in the counsel, add in the feedback of other people who will speak truth, not just from those who love you and won't tell you the truth, but from those who love you enough to tell you the truth. Will you do that today? I'm asking you to do that today. To not let this these three characteristics slip out of your mind before the day is over, but to ask one person who will speak truthfully to you, do I live out these three characteristics of a fully committed believer? I hope you'll do that because here's number one. You ready? And I'll explain it in a minute. A fully committed believer will have a wax-free love. And what on earth does that mean? Getting a little odd. Look what Paul says, let love be genuine. There is so much in these four words that it's almost worth taking a sermon just to do that or even a series. There's four different Greek words for love. And the one that Paul uses here was rarely ever used in pagan Greek literature, yet it's the most powerful of all four of them. The word is agape. Many of you know it. Agape love. It's a rich word that Paul intentionally uses. Here's Agape love is God's love. It's the kind of love that allows nothing, listen, nothing to come between the giver and the receiver. Parents, rebellious children, nothing comes between that parent and that child. Children who think their parents are stricter than anybody else, agape love lets nothing come between them and their parents. Members of Cornerstone, those who come and those who irritate you here. Agape love lets nothing come between the giver and the receiver. Here's what 1 John says. It says, God is love. Three words. That is, friends, the extent of the definition of this love. 
in all of Scripture. See, agape love is difficult to define with words. In fact, there is no technical definition of this love in Scripture because any definition is going to limit what this love really means. You know what the Bible does instead of trying to define this love? It shows how this love operates. Inside my wedding ring and inside my wife's is this Bible verse, or at least the reference to it, 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. This is agape love. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. So far, I've failed them all. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. That's how the Bible defines love. It illustrates it. But we can know some of what agape love really is. Here we go. You ready? This love loves regardless of the circumstances. And don't let that just go through one ear and out the other, because that is deep. Circumstances don't dictate this love. People being nice to us doesn't dictate whether we have this love for them. It loves regardless of the object. Oh, here they are, family, friend, or enemy. Agape love comes from God. You know what he does? Romans 5, here's what it says. He poured it into our hearts. The world can't manufacture this love. This is a love for those in Christ alone. It pours into our hearts through the Spirit of God who has been given to us because this love's not based on feelings. This love's not based on emotions. But listen, it's a love of the will. Do you know what that means? It means that it's never compulsory. It never forces itself. It's always a choice to love that comes from a desire to genuinely do so. You're getting to know a little bit now what Paul means, let love be genuine. There's a lot more. It's not a blind love. We've all heard love is blind. No, it's not. God's love sees all the defects and yet still chooses to be loving. Clearly sees the true value and the one being loved. Without this kind of love living in our hearts, friends, our spiritual gifts are useless and empty. It's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And he goes on. Paul says, this is the greatest. Let this greatest of all love, let it be genuine in our hearts. You know, if you think about it, the phrase, let love be genuine, let God's love be genuine, is almost like saying, let snowflakes be white. Or let the word of God be true, or let the Dallas Cowboys be the best football team on the planet. It just doesn't make sense, because it is genuine. Agape love is God's love, holy, sincere, genuine. But friends, here's why Paul's saying it. You ready? Humanity is clever. We're all clever. Because we've all learned, now listen, you know you've done this, I've done this, we all have learned how to express love without meaning it. 
So Paul writes, let love be genuine, or the NIV says love must be sincere. You know what that word sincere means? It comes from two Latin words, sine cara, which means without wax. That sounds strange. But let me tell you why it's so awesome. Because it refers to the ancient practice of using wax to hide cracks in pottery that is inferior so that it could be sold at a superior price. That's what they did. They rubbed wax, those who were illicit, unethical merchants, to hide those cracks so that you would get this home before you noticed that it was inferior. In fact, the words Sinachara were stamped on pottery to be able to confirm to you that it had not been doctored. Isn't that amazing? That Paul would even have to use these thoughts to tell us, let God's love in us be genuine. He says, let our love be stamped with this. Not hiding the cracks with hypocritical words. In fact, the Greek word, I just told you the Latin, the Greek word for genuine, here it is. It means to be unhypocritical. What does that mean? Well, Greek actors were wore, commonly wore masks to portray the emotion of the character that they were in. They would carry tragic, comic, melodramatic masks, and when they would lift one up, that would that would signal a change in character. They'd put that one down and lift the other one up. That's how they did drama in Greek plays. And the word used for this acting was the word hypocrite. It's saying, when Paul says, let love be unhypocritical, it's saying that you. Lo- it's when we love someone one time, and then the very next time we ignore them like they don't even exist. Have you ever had that happen? Some of you might be saying, yeah, Pastor Tim, it was you. I'll just tell you, I probably don't even like you. It's prom. <laughs> I have the worst pastor ever. Uh, you don't need to amen that one. <laughs> what is unhypocritical love? It is promising to pray for somebody, but not really following through with it. We've all done this. It's asking how somebody is without really caring. It's pretending nothing is wrong in your relationship with somebody, but beneath a smile you're simmering with irritation, hurt, and resentment. It's acting like you love somebody, but when it costs you something, the truth really comes out. See, Paul is commanding us, friends, listen, if you don't get anything else out of let love be genuine, at least get this, ready? Paul is commanding us, listen, to not be an actor when it comes to love. Don't hide the truth with wax just to make a sale or an impression. Instead, be real. Be full of God's love. You know, this past week, I was reflecting on the close friendships that I've had with men throughout my adult life, and I started to notice that there's been a pattern in those relationships. All of them, I think without exception, were authentic men. In other words, is how I often define authenticity. What you see is what you get. I like that. There's very little duplicity. You don't have to guess to what they're thinking or what they're wondering. If, they've, if you've offended them, they just tell you. 
These are the people I love to be with. These are people who have genuine love. They don't wear masks. There is no wax. They're the ones whose words of love are not just words, but their actions of love outspeak it. So Paul says, let love be genuine. Friends, listen, if we're going to be committed believers fully on the altar, living out God's purposes in our lives. These are the characteristics we've got to learn to live. And one of them is just let your love be genuine. Don't be an actor. He goes on. Says you need to have an abhorrence of evil. That's what he says. Verse nine, he says, abhor what is evil. You know, the shining moments for me in youth ministry were very, very few. In fact, I could count them all on one, on one finger. And here it is. This is my most brilliant thing I think I've ever done in youth ministry. I took a group of junior high boys over to one of my leader's families, one of my leader's homes, Bob and Jenny Rinker. And I took one of my children with me. That, that child was about a year, year and a half old. And while we were there, he had a messy diaper. And so I said, oh, we all knew it. So I said, guys, I'm going to go back and change the diaper of, uh, I, I'm trying not to tell you who it was because Aaron would kill me. So I, <laughs> honey, do not tell him. I said, told him uh, everybody's name. So I walked back to the bathroom and I changed his diaper and I got this brilliant, insightful idea. I think from God himself, I took another diaper, clean one, and I I snuck into the Rinker's kitchen and found their chocolate syrup and I poured it all over the diaper and then wadded it up like it was the one I just changed from Aaron. And I walked back in. All the guys are sitting in the front room and I said, boys, listen, I think this is one of those mature wake-up calls. This is what you have to look forward to when you become a father. And I unwrapped it for them. And they're screaming and writhing. And then all of a sudden, this is the part that's from the Lord. I said, you know, guys, I've always wondered what this tastes like. And I bent down in one big lick all over my face, all over my tongue. And now listen to this. They ran out of the house screaming. I don't think that you can have a better mental picture for what the word abhor really means literally. You see, one second Paul is writing about love, and here all of a sudden on the next he's writing about hate, which is what the word abhor means. But friends, listen, you got to get this. You're not going to get the weight of Paul's argument. It's not only meaning hate. It means to detest something utterly. But listen, it's not even hate and detest. It means to hate and detest with Horror. But friends, listen, it's even worse. It means to hate and detest something with horror to the point where you flee away from it. That's what this word of horror means in the Greek. It occurs a whopping one time in Scripture here. This gives a focus and the force behind Psalm 97.10, O you who love the Lord, Hate evil. How many of you remember the American rock band Sticks, popular in the 70s and the 80s? You know, the Greek root of the word abhor is sticks. You know what that means? It means you ought to quit listening to that music, number one, <laughs> who happens to be one of my favorites. In Greek mythology, in Greek mythology, the river Styx formed the boundary 
between earth and Hades. It separated the living from the dead and the souls of the newly dead were carried across by the ferryman, that river, into the Hades. All right, the word abhor does this, and you really got to get this because when you understand this, now you're going to understand the rest of what I'm going to tell you in point number two. See, the word abhor takes the verb, which is sticks, and it adds a preposition to it, which serves to intensify and strengthen the meaning so that it gives you the strong idea of separating from something that makes you shudder with horror. That's what the word abhor means. The fully committed believer, Paul says, shudders, should shudder with horror at evil and seeks in every way possible to separate from it. Not sitting around talking about how terrible that evil thing was, but actively choosing to withdraw and separate from it. So what's that mean in practical living? Now, friends, before I go on, let me just simply tell you this. I am simply telling you what Paul is saying and what these words mean. There is no great exposition that I'm giving to you. So if you don't like what I'm about to tell you, I think you got to go vertical with that one. Because I'm not, I'm not adding in anything. This is simply what Paul is saying. What's it mean in practical living? You ever gotten up out of a theater because the movie was so filthy? You ever pulled out of a conversation because it started to become slanderous? Psalm 101.3, I will not set before my eyes anything that's worthless. In the Hebrew, that word worthless, Belial, a name for Satan. The psalmist says, I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. Have you ever been incensed at injustice and tried to bring a person out of it? All of this is what it means to abhor what is evil. It's what genuine love does, which isn't blind. It actively sees what is evil, and it sees what is good. It flees from one and clings to the other. We're told repeatedly in Scripture, flee from what is evil. God's love produces this abhorrence. It produces this desire to separate from evil. Why? Now, friends, listen. Why does Paul say this? Because evil always, without exception, harms or destroys the image of God and man. Always. It never does not do that. Evil never edifies. It never builds up believers. It never seeks to help the suffering. In fact, suffering is evil. And it tends to produce further evil. It's the exact opposite of holiness and godliness. The child of God hates evil because God hates evil. Because it's the enemy of God and the enemy of love. And it's to be as fervently abhorred as love is to be fervently desired. Get what Jude says. Jude says, have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear hating even the garment stained by flesh. You know what that means? Well, you will know what it means if you're a doctor or a nurse. Because you have to treat infectious, sometimes deadly diseases, and they take every precaution to protect themselves so that they don't become infected as well. That's what Paul is saying, or the writer of Jude, rather, is saying, to not even let it infect you, even stain your clothes with evil. 
Friends, listen, it's why Paul wrote, abhor what is evil in the Greek present tense. He could have written this in any tense he wanted. The Greek present means over and over, every minute of the day, abhor, separate, be revulsed by evil. Can I offer you the advice, if you'll take it, great, of William Barclay, who once wrote that our security against sin lies and are being shocked by it. Some of you have puzzled looks, and I don't blame you. I did too. Our security against sin lies in the ability in our hearts to be shocked by it. When's the last time you've been shocked by evil? Was it last Sunday when that Indiana pastor was murdered right in the middle of a church service? Or when you found out from USA Today this last week that fan favorite Iron Chef Kat Cora and her lesbian partner are both pregnant? Friends, does evil even shock you? I know Christian after Christian that says, ah, it's the world. They're not shocked anymore. Which tells you they can't be abhorring evil because abhorring evil is to be shocked and to shudder with revulsion to the point where you will flee from it. How about the recent popular episode of Family Guy? Rated for 14-year-olds, filled with homosexuality, a baby drinking whale sperm on his cereal, and the rest I cannot even tell you about. We have families in our church that like and love this show. Alexander Pope, in his essay on man, he writes this poem. I love it. Here's what he says. Vice is a monster of so frightful mean, which means appearance, as to be hated needs to be seen. Now listen. Yet seen too oft familiar with her face, we first endure, then pity, and then embrace. Friends, that's the law of desensification, desensitization. And as we are, refuse to allow the world to squeeze us into its mold, and as we, as we renew our minds by the pure word of God, friends, we will cling to Christ. And when we cling to Christ, what is pure will be sought after, and what is evil will be abhorred. It will be an automatic reflex so that we live out 1 Thessalonians 5. Test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Friends, holding fast to what is good is precisely the third characteristic of a fully committed Christian. What have we learned so far? These are not easy words to handle. I can't wait to someday God makes you preach. I hope he does or teach. Because when you're in this all week, believe me, everything I'm doing now is like, oh my goodness, am I abhorring evil? Am I holding fast to what is good? Am I really loving in a genuine, wax-free way? This is brutal. No complaints. Third characteristic of a committed believer, a fascination. Look how I spelled it with good. Paul writes, hold fast to what is good. Friends, as strong as we should hate and separate from evil, we should hold fast to the good. You know what that phrase means, hold fast? It means in the NIV to cling, but it has a particularly powerful meaning. Literally, it means to be glued 
cemented or fastened together and so unite. Now, you ready? Listen, this is beautiful. This is the same word that is used to describe the oneness between a husband and wife in sexual intimacy. Paul writes, be continually entering into close contact with what is good, not just once, not periodically, but continually, every single day. Bond yourself physically, emotionally, spiritually to what is good. Bond yourself to good things, good people, good pursuits, good influences. Teens, you know, the writer of Proverbs, I think, was pretty serious when he says a companion of fools will suffer harm. I think he was even more serious or just as serious when he said that uh, those who are wise will be with wise people. I think Paul was pretty serious when he said, don't be yoked to an unbeliever. Don't enter into a covenant with an unbeliever, whether that's business or marriage. Because good, committed people will cling and hold fast and be glued to what is good. That's why Paul writes in Philippians 4, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. I am almost done. I don't know if you can bear up with these words. I've had a hard time this week. Some of you, you might be getting a little defensive. You know what? One of the signs of defense is trying to come around from the offense of the Scripture, and that is, well, what does that mean? We're supposed to become monastic monks and create an insulated, hyper-spiritual bubble to live in? No. We're to live in the world, not of it. We're to be moving into the world to bring the kingdom of God to bear, but not participating in what the world loves because the world loves what is opposition to God and antagonistic to Him. And when the world loves that and something comes into your path that reflects that, then abhorring evil is to flee away from it. Whether that's a, a woman who is enticing you men or men who, uh, uh, ladies, a man that's enticing you, whether it's a computer pop-up screen that shows you what you ought not to be looking at or a conversation that will put bitterness into your heart, flee from it, is what Paul says. Be reviled. Separate from what is evil. Don't love what this world produces. Saturate yourselves with what is pleasing to God. This is what Paul is saying. Christians must not, they cannot be neutral when it comes to good and evil. Friends, listen, you can't play the middle of the road. There's no sitting on the fence between good and evil. You cannot compromise. It is deadly to your soul. We should be shocked and repulsed by evil every single day to the point that we are willing to separate from it. It just is powerfully moved towards what is good and hold on to it. Paul says, live a life of genuine, agape, wax-free love, and you will be repulsed by evil to the point you flee. And you will hold and be glued and bonded to what is good in your life because love abhors evil and just as strongly clings to good. Friends, these are the three characteristics 
of a fully committed believer that Paul gives. He's moving on. He's about to give us 10 ways that committed believers function in the church. But what he's just given us needs to be something that I'm asking you to ask somebody who will tell you the truth and say this, do I love for real? Do I flee from evil? And do I cling to what is good? Will you ask somebody that today? You need the community around you. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Can I ask you to be absolutely, utterly honest this morning, first service, hands were all over the sanctuary going up. Let's just be honest, friends. I don't know where you're at. Some I do because you've told me, but most of you I don't. But boy, I tell you, your heavenly Father who loves you absolutely knows everything. So let's be honest, and if you would, be honest before your pastor as well. I want to pray for you. If you know, if you know that you have not been abhorring evil, that you've allowed it into your life and not be shuddered and revolted and fleeing from it. I want you to raise your hand. I want to pray for you. Be honest. Hands going up all over the place. Would you be honest? There is something to this public display of admission that will seriously cement this in your soul. Any more? More hands going up. Any more? I'll wait. Thank you. Go ahead and put your hands down. Let me ask one more question. Keep your eyes closed. I don't normally, I don't like to keep your eyes closed, but this is one I really want you to be honest. No distractions. If you know what is good and you have not held fast to it, whether that is that commitment you made at the top of the year to be reading the Bible and meditating on it every day, or whether that's getting involved with a community of Christians, whether that is witnessing to that person that God has put on your heart, whether that is embracing the disciplines of a redeemed, regenerate life, whatever that might be, I would ask you to raise your hand as well if you've not held on to what is good. You might have started out well, but it slipped. Any more? Friends, thanks for your honesty. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters. Lord, I struggle, struggle maddeningly with these. My hand's up too. Lord, I want to be on that altar. I want to live for you. Lord, I want to be fully committed and extraordinarily pleasing to you. But Lord, we can't get there if we don't abhor evil. If we let it into our homes, let it into our minds, and let it into our hearts, we will not be revolted by it. And we won't cling to what is good. And our love cannot possibly be genuine and wax-free. So Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters, strengthen them. Let them, Lord, live today. and Give them the strength to live tomorrow. For your glory, I ask and I pray that you would help them. And in Jesus' name, amen.